Welcome to episode nine of our podcast series. I'm Dr. Brendan Morrissey, your host for the Future Leaders Communicate podcast. This episode features material from our April 2022 print edition of the Future Leaders Communicate. The guest editor for the April edition was Dr. David Brow, a General Surgical Principal House Officer at Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, Queensland. This podcast focuses on asplenia and sepsis. We present the tragic case of the death of a six-year-old child from sepsis. This is followed by two expert commentaries. The first is from Associate Professor Meryl Cole Sinclair, hematologist and head of laboratory hematology at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, who offers some tips and traps for junior doctors when dealing with overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. The second expert commentary is from Professor Claire Norse, paediatric infection specialist at Queensland's Children's Hospital guides us through an approach to the asplenic patient. To round out this episode, we conclude with comments from our peers. Let's now listen to the editorial. Editorial from Brendan Morrissey. Welcome to the April 2022 edition of the Future Leaders Communique. This edition focuses on the preventable death of a six-year-old child, LS, from sepsis. Every preventable death is a tragedy, but none more so than that of a child. In this edition, we hope to highlight some of the lessons that can be learned from this case to inform and evolve your clinical practice. Infections are one of the leading causes of mortality in children worldwide. The incidence of sepsis in children in Australia and New Zealand stands at around 6 per 100,000. All-cause infection as a principal diagnosis accounts for 11.5% of all presentations to paediatric emergency departments, and sepsis accounts for 12% of all paediatric intensive care unit admissions in Australia. Death from sepsis occurs within 24 hours of admission to the paediatric intensive care unit in more than 50% of cases, and these deaths represent 25% of all deaths in the paediatric intensive care unit. Despite all of this, timely recognition and management of sepsis in children remains a significant challenge to clinicians and healthcare systems. Identifying sepsis in children can be aided by a high threshold for concern in high-risk groups. These include neonates, immunocompromised children, children with central venous access devices, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Red flag features on assessment should also trigger the consideration of sepsis as a differential diagnosis. These red flag features include high level of parental concern, representation of the child within 48 hours, clinical deterioration despite treatment, and recent surgery or burns. The initial presentation of a child with sepsis can be nonspecific or falsely reassuring. A more benign diagnosis, such as mild viral illness, is oftentimes more likely and easily applied. It is important to avoid premature closure in our differential diagnosis of the unwell child. Premature closure is a form of bias or cognitive error where the clinician fails to consider alternatives after the initial diagnosis is made. This inevitably leads to both delayed diagnosis and delayed initiation of appropriate management. There are several methods you should consider to help avoid premature closure with formulating your differential diagnoses. 1. Collate your differential diagnoses from a wide base of information, detailed assessments and collateral histories from parents, carers and primary care providers 
will reduce your dependence on a single, potentially flawed point of view. Two, cast a wider net. Diagnostic accuracy is improved by considering a broad list of possibilities at first and whittling the list down in a considered manner as new information from investigations, repeated assessments, etc. becomes available. And three, keep an open mind. Be open to altering your most likely diagnosis in the face of disconfirming information. Our guest editor for this edition is Dr. David Brough. David is currently the General Surgery Principal House Officer at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, Queensland. His professional interests include patient safety and how clinician errors can be avoided within the hospital setting. He has collated a fascinating review of the tragic case of LS for this edition. This is appended by expert commentaries from Associate Professor Merrill Cole Sinclair and Professor Claire Norse, offering wisdom and insight into what lessons may be learned from this clinical case and how to apply these lessons to your own practice. Let's now listen to our case report entitled Asplenia, Think Sepsis by Dr. David Brow. Asplenia, Think Sepsis from Dr. David Brow, General Surgery Principal House Officer. Clinical Summary. LS was a six-year-old girl with a medical history of hereditary spherocytosis. She had undergone a splenectomy at four years of age for management of recurrent anemia requiring blood transfusions. Following this operation, LS received prophylactic antibiotics for a period of 18 months. When she was six years of age, LS's mother brought her to see a general practitioner, Dr. SW, with a two-day history of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, and neck pain. A trial of oral rehydration within Dr. SW's practice office was unsuccessful. Dr. SW therefore arranged a prompt referral to the local emergency department for LS to undergo assessment, further investigation, and possible input from the pediatric team. Dr. SW made note of Alice's history of asplenia in the referral letter. On arrival to the emergency department of a large regional hospital, Alice had a temperature of 37.6 degrees centigrade and otherwise normal vital signs. She was reviewed by a senior emergency registrar, Dr. R, at 13.30 hours. Dr. R did not think Alice appeared unwell. They made a provisional diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis and treated her pain and dehydration. Despite oral rehydration, she vomited again, leading to the decision to admit her to the pediatric ward. Dr. R phoned Dr. S, a junior pediatric registrar, to refer LS for admission. Dr. S was not told about the contents of the general practitioner's referral letter. LS was transferred to the paediatric ward that afternoon at 17.30 hours. Her first review on the ward was at 21.15 hours by the overnight paediatric resident, Dr. N. Dr. N's assessment was that LS did not look unwell and Dr. N agreed with the diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis. Dr. N obtained intravenous access and sent a blood sample for a full blood count. At midnight, Dr. N received information that LS's white cell count was markedly elevated at 46.5 by 10 to the 9 per litre, reference range 4.5 to 14.5 by 10 to the 9 per litre. Dr. N reviewed LS again at 0400 hours when she prescribed intravenous morphine as analgesia for her refractory headache and neck pain. 
Dr. N handed over the care of LS to the day pediatric consultant, Dr. C, at 0800 hours. At handover, Dr. N asked whether LS should be commenced on intravenous antibiotics. The pediatric consultant, Dr. C, told Dr. N to hold off as the team would decide when they reviewed the patient shortly. At 0955 hours, LS deteriorated, developing a high temperature and a rash. Dr. C asked the day registrar to review the patient. The day registrar reviewed LS and commenced intravenous ceftriaxone for suspected meningitis and informed Dr. C of their findings and plan. Dr. C recommended adding intravenous vancomycin and discussing the case with the infectious diseases team at the tertiary pediatric hospital and advised that they would review LS shortly. Dr. C reviewed LS at 10.50 hours. However, by this time, she was clinically very unwell with severe sepsis. The tertiary pediatric hospital recommended a further dose of ceftriaxone. By 1300 hours, LS had an episode of odd posturing and tongue protrusion, suspected to be a seizure. While staff prepared for immediate transfer to the tertiary pediatric hospital, she became unresponsive and required emergent resuscitation. She was intubated, ventilated, and transferred to the tertiary pediatric hospital's intensive care unit. On arrival there that evening, she had fixed and dilated pupils. The next day, tests revealed extensive brain injury consistent with brain death. Supportive medical care was withdrawn that afternoon and shortly after Alice died whilst being held by her mother. Pathology. The cause of death was brainstem herniation due to or as a consequence of pneumococcal meningitis with contribution by hereditary spherocytosis and splenectomy. Investigation. LS's case underwent an internal death review by the tertiary paediatric hospital. Concerns were raised about the management of LS at the referring hospital. The case was reported to the coroner outlining these concerns, probably inadequate vaccination post-splenectomy, lack of antibiotic prophylaxis in an asplenic child and a delay in commencing IV antibiotics. The focus of the coroner's inquest was to investigate whether there was any opportunities to prevent Alice's death, as well as trying to prevent similar circumstances occurring in the future. The coroner was assisted with the investigation by Dr. H, a clinical forensic medicine physician, and Dr. W, a pediatrician and clinical geneticist, as an independent expert witness. The inquest began with an evaluation of the adequacy and appropriateness of long-term management of LS following her splenectomy. LS underwent a splenectomy by Dr. B and was reviewed 12 days post-operatively. Dr. B then referred LS back into the care of her general practitioner, Dr. SC, and her pediatrician, Dr. D, for ongoing management. Her paediatrician was notified by the paediatric surgeon, Dr. B, that LS would require six months of prophylactic antibiotics. Dr. D extended the course of antibiotics to 18 months at LS's mother's request. While Dr. W commented that ongoing prophylactic antibiotics may have led to a different outcome, the main concern lay with LS's immunization status. Unfortunately, LS had not been provided with additional vaccinations as part of the post-splenectomy protocol. On review of the medical records, preoperatively, the paediatric surgeon, Dr. B, had written to the paediatrician, Dr. D, recommending that LS's vaccinations be kept up to date, including haemophilus and meningococcus.
While there was no mention of pneumococcus, both clinicians agreed that it was understood that the standard of care for post-splenectomy patients require additional vaccinations, including haemophilus, meningococcus, and pneumococcus. Of note, a comment made by Dr. H, the clinical forensic medicine physician, outlined that the phase up to date was insufficient. Dr. H opined that it would not necessarily be in the scope of a general practitioner to know the additional vaccines. At the time, the state health service was not able to easily view if a splenic patient's vaccinations were up to date. The adequacy and appropriateness of care provided to LS by the large regional hospital was criticised by both experts Dr. H and Dr. W. The initial referral of LS to the emergency department included a comprehensive letter outlining all the key information, including a request that blood tests be taken and the paediatric team should be consulted. The sequence of care provided to LS from her emergency department presentation to admission to the ward was highlighted as the most concerning issue during the inquest. LS was reviewed by Dr. R and was given a provisional diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis. Concerns were raised that a differential diagnosis of a bacterial infection did not appear to have been considered. A decision was made not to take blood for testing and the contents of the general practitioner's letter were not discussed when LS was referred to junior paediatric registrar, Dr. S. LS was admitted to the paediatric ward at 17.30 hours, but was not seen by the junior paediatric registrar, Dr. S, or any other doctors until 21.15 hours. The interim management plan prepared by the emergency registrar, Dr. R, which included routine observation and fluids, was followed. Dr. S was on the day shift from 0800 hours to 2030 hours and did not review LS during her shift. The issues of a busy workload combined with paediatric staff shortages meant that LS was not reviewed in a timely manner. LS was reviewed by the night resident, Dr. N, who placed a cannula and obtained a sample of blood for a full blood count. Dr. N received advice at midnight that LS's WCC was 46.5 by 10 to the 9 per litre. Dr. N did not review LS again until 0400 hours. Unfortunately, Dr. N was unable to give evidence at the inquest. The workload of the night was not detailed. After the 0800 hours morning handover, Dr. N directly spoke with Dr. C to seek permission to start intravenous antibiotics. Dr. C recommended to hold off and she would review her shortly. Unfortunately, this review only occurred at 10.50 hours due to prioritizing discharging patients. Dr. C outlined that she prioritized discharging patients to allow other patients to be admitted. Coroner's findings. The coroner noted in their findings that LS was an asplenic child who was at risk of developing overwhelming sepsis. Despite this, apart from her general practitioner, no one seemed to have seriously considered that LS was also at risk of developing overwhelming sepsis from a bacterial infection. The coroner concluded that there were a number of missed opportunities where action could have been taken earlier, which may have prevented her death occurring. These opportunities included better management of LS's post-operative vaccination status. LS's case has since led to Queensland joining with Victoria and Tasmania to form a registry body, Spleen Australia, to enable rapid access to vaccination records. 
acting upon the recommendations contained within LS's general practitioner letter when she presented to the emergency department. Commencing antibiotics as soon as the full blood count results were known, and escalating to senior medical support once intravenous analgesia was considered to control LS's headache. The coroner also noted a number of recommendations made on behalf of LS's family at inquest that were worthy of further consideration. These included improved utilization of online electronic status of children's immunization history, and implementation of more education regarding asplenic patients and overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. Author's comments. This case explores the probable preventable death of a six-year-old asplenic child due to overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. It is confronting. On reflection, there are a series of multifactorial issues, including individual and system errors, that led to her tragic death. The learning points for junior doctors should be, one, asplenia, medical or surgical, in patients should alert us to consider their risk of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection, and they may require early antibiotics. Two, differential diagnoses are important in medicine. Premature closure on a relatively benign diagnosis can blind clinicians to signs of deterioration and delay appropriate intervention or escalation. Three, effective communication is essential when conducting referrals from both the referrer and referee. The referral conversation should be a full and frank discussion of the case, utilizing closed-the-loop communication. Four, when you're unsure of the diagnosis or the presentation is atypical, you should involve your consultants early. And five, correspondence between interdisciplinary teams, including general practitioner letters, remains pivotal in the handover of patient care. These letters should be specific. The general term immunizations up to date may be common practice, but as outlined in the case of LS, this compromised her care. Let's now listen to our two expert commentaries, the first of which is entitled Overwhelming Post-Blenectomy Infection, Tips and Traps for Junior Doctors. This is written by Associate Professor Merrill Cole Sinclair. Our second expert commentary is entitled An Approach to the Asplenic Patient by Professor Claire Norse. Expert Commentary, Overwhelming Post-Splenectomy Infection, Tips and Traps for Junior Doctors, from Associate Professor Merrill Cole Sinclair. Introduction. This case highlights the potentially fatal consequence of overwhelming sepsis in asplenic patients or those with impaired splenic function, also known as overwhelming post-splenectomy infection, and two crucial elements of the ongoing care of these patients, that is, infection prophylaxis, and early recognition and therapy for overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. Background. Whilst the spleen is not necessary for life, it plays an important role in bloodborne pathogen clearance and control of infection, particularly by encapsulated bacteria, including streptococcus pneumonia, haemophilus influenza type B, and Neisseria meningitidis, but also other organisms such as intraerythrocytic parasites, malaria and babesiosis, and capnocytophaga canamorsis, associated with dog bites. 
Infectious and other particles are filtered out in the splenic red pulp sinusoids. The sinusoidal macrophages are phagocytic and elaborate inflammatory cytokines and B lymphocytes in the white pulp produce antibodies against polysaccharide antigens on a capsulated bacteria. Splenic function is absent in congenital or acquired asplenia, diagnostic, therapeutic, or rupture or trauma-related splenectomy, and where the spleen is present can be variably impaired in some hematological conditions such as sickle cell disease and a range of immunological, infiltrative, malabsorptive, and neoplastic diseases. Patients with impaired splenic function are at a high risk for fulminant sepsis, especially with the organisms described above. The risk in an individual may change over time, but in many patients is lifelong and may add to infection risk or other deficits of the immune system. Overwhelming post-splenectomy infection can have a fatal outcome or be associated with life-changing irreversible complications such as extensive tissue or limb loss. The presence of how jolly bodies, basophilic nuclear remnants and circulating erythrocytes on a blood film is a marker of asplenia or hyapsplenia and peripheral blood IgM memory B lymphocyte quantification can predict for capacity to mount an immune response to encapsulated bacteria. Other reported assessments of splenic functions such as specialized imaging, etc. are not routinely available. An infection risk mitigation plan. An infection risk mitigation plan is essential for patients with impaired splenic function and requires ongoing patient and carer education, engagement and empowerment starting preferably prior to splenectomy or immediately after recognition of a functional deficit and ongoing involvement of primary care and other clinicians. Spleen Australia is an Australian-based multidisciplinary asplenia or hyposplenia registry providing expert advice and guidance for clinicians and patients. Their comprehensive published guidelines for sepsis prevention include education and counselling about overwhelming postsplenectomy infection risk, clinical alerts, a schedule of pneumococcal, haemophilus influenza B, meningococcal and seasonal influenza vaccinations, antibiotic prophylaxis of varying duration, lifelong in some patients, emergency antibiotic supply for patients to have on hand, travel and animal bite slash scratch advice, and advocacy for improved systems for infection prevention. Early presentation for assessment and recognition by patients, carers, and clinicians of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection is imperative for optimal and urgent therapeutic intervention and good outcomes. Fever is an early warning sign of sepsis and should prompt early clinical evaluation and use of emergency antibiotics by the patient and carer. Fever, however, may be mild or absent, and other general or specific symptoms such as malaise, chills, rigors, rash, joint pain, dizziness, dyspnea, headache, confusion, collapse, nausea, vomiting, abdominal or chest pain, etc. may be present or develop. Symptoms may not be easily discernible in infants and children, and history from parents is crucial. Whilst other diagnoses may be responsible for these features, overwhelming postsplenectomy infection must be considered in the patient with impaired splenic function. The clinical course without early treatment can be fulminant within a few hours with rapid deterioration, shock, endovascular injury, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, and multi-system failure, which may be irreversible. 
rapid triage and clinical assessment, and collection of full blood examination, chemistry, lactate, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy screen, blood, and other cultures, blood gas estimation, and chest radiograph and other imaging, as appropriate, should occur as soon as possible. Early intervention with intravenous broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover the likely organisms implicated in overwhelming post-splenectomy infection must be prioritized and administered as soon as feasible and before pathology results are available and patients are sent for imaging, etc. Early and aggressive supportive care is also essential. Summary. In summary, overwhelming post-splenectomy infection is a potentially fatal and preventable complication of impaired splenic function. Patients, carers, and clinicians must collaborate to ensure ongoing review and action with respect to all aspects of infection prophylaxis and recognition and early presentation of potential sepsis. In the ambulatory and emergency settings, Clinicians must have a high index of suspicion of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection and facilitate early assessment and commencement of appropriate antibiotic therapy without delay. Tips and traps for junior doctors. Patients with no spleen or splenic hypofunction for a variety of different congenital or acquired reasons are at high risk for overwhelming post-splenectomy infection with encapsulated bacteria and other important infections, which might be encountered in tropical or other endemic areas, but also in day-to-day mishaps such as dog bites. It is not rare to encounter such patients in any ambulant or emergency medical care scenario as, depending on underlying conditions and good counselling, support, infection, prophylaxis and management, etc., many will live an otherwise normal life. A well-informed conscious patient can tell you they have had a splenectomy, but some patients may not be aware of their splenic hypofunction, so in any conditions where this is more likely, ask yourself the question, Has this patient any evidence of splenic hypofunction? If so, take some action. In a patient who is unable to give a history, information pointing to an asplenic or hyposplenic status includes history from others, for example, parents, carers or referrers, SOS bracelets, cards or medical record alerts, abdominal, including laparoscopy scars, old notes, previous full blood examination reports, including comments like how will jolly bodies or asplenic or hyposplenic changes and also abdominal imaging reports. In any medical interaction with a patient with asplenia or hyposplenism, take some time to check their knowledge regarding the associated infection risk, especially of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection, their infection prevention plan, including prophylactic and emergency antibiotics, and their relevant vaccination status, updating this as necessary. Get expert help if necessary and recommend registration with Spleen Australia. In asplenic or hyposplenic patients of any age who present with infection, fever, or are non-specifically unwell, or who report that they have taken their emergency antibiotics for fever, etc., do not dismiss the possibility of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection and do not delay in initiating appropriate clinical assessment, close monitoring, and early commencement of antimicrobials and aggressive supportive therapy. If it turns out that they have a less severe illness in the end, so be it, but better to err on the side of caution to save life and limb in these patients. Expert commentary. 
An Approach to the Asplenic Patient from Professor Claire Norse. Introduction. Overwhelming sepsis is a recognized and often tragic complication of asplenia or hyposplenia. Clinicians need to be aware of the additional considerations when caring for a child with functional or anatomical asplenia, in particular, one, additional immunization requirements, two, role of prophylactic antibiotics for children with asplenia, and three, importance of good communication between health providers and the role of the parent in clinical decision-making. With regard to the case of LS, it is important to note that diarrhea is a common presenting feature of sepsis, but the distinction between viral gastroenteritis and sepsis is difficult. Pediatric sepsis pathways have been developed for Queensland and other states to assist the clinician in considering the diagnosis of sepsis and acting accordingly. It is worth noting that in this pathway, parental concern is listed as a significant factor in making a decision about sepsis. Most parents are very concerned, but with experience, one learns to pay particular attention when a parent is insistent that a child is more unwell than a health worker believes. With regard to investigations, one must endeavour to find the middle ground between being overly risk-averse in ordering excessive investigations that unnecessarily consume valuable resources and omitting appropriate investigations that may provide crucial information. This is a challenge for every clinician. Although high white cell counts have not been found to correlate well with evolving sepsis, a very high count should nevertheless prompt a clinician to consider sepsis and if there are any other suggested features of sepsis, empiric antibiotics should be commenced. My rule of thumb is to not hesitate to administer antibiotics to a child if sepsis is a possibility, but to always take relevant cultures of blood, urine, etc. first, such that antibiotics can be ceased within a day or two if cultures are negative and the child improves. Immunization Requirements Childhood immunization recommendations have become extremely comprehensive and change frequently. I no longer try to memorize all recommendations, but keep a reference handy. The standard national recommendations are available in the Australian Immunization Handbook and are reviewed and updated at regular intervals. There is a particular section devoted to children with functional or anatomical asplenia. These recommendations are complex, particularly when catch-up vaccinations are needed. Prophylactic antibiotics. The required duration of antibiotic prophylaxis for a child with asplenia is difficult to determine. A reasonable recommendation for prophylaxis is up to 16 years of age. Spleen Australia's website has minimum recommended durations, listed groups where lifelong prophylaxis should be considered, recommendations for a particular antibiotic, and recommendations for emergency antibiotic supply at home. The recommendation is for prophylaxis to continue for at least three years after a splenectomy. There is no doubt that both additional vaccinations and particular recommendations for antibiotic prophylaxis are difficult for both parents and health providers to remember. Hence, Spleen Australia encourages parents and patients to register and obtain information and reminders. Doctors can easily access the recommendations. Communication. My final point is about the crucial importance of good communication, often difficult to achieve. Clear communication is important between patient, parent, and health provider, and between health providers, in the case of LS, surgeon, pediatrician, and general practitioner. 
Communication is easier now with electronic methods and accessibility of health records. Special consideration needs to be made for patients with particular language or understanding needs. Let's now move on to the final part of our podcast, comments from our peers. Comments from our peers. There are two sides to working with colleagues. On the one hand, we need to trust each other as it is vital to work together to share information and care for patients. And on the other hand, we still need to make our own clinical judgments and not become blinkered by the opinions of others. This case has taught me the importance of being alert to even seemingly small distant events in a patient's medical history and any form of immunosuppression. This case puts me on high alert to act faster and monitor closely for deterioration due to the risk of overwhelming sepsis in a splenic patients. Points of transfer are points of vulnerability. Therefore, we must recognize important parts of our patient's history and ensure good handover to the next team. The order of the daily morning ward round is structured for a reason. We always start with patients who have had MET calls, an escalation of care, or a clinical concern raised overnight. Registries are wonderful opportunities for patients to be linked in with a service that will accompany them over the course of their life and will help to empower them to understand their own health conditions. One of our responsibilities is to be aware of these community supports and link our patients in with them. That concludes episode nine of our podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Remember, the online print version is available on our website, www.thecommuniques.com, which also includes a list of recommended resources and references. I'm Brendan Morrissey. Thanks for listening.